Welcome to What Happens Next. My name is Larry Bernstein. What Happens Next is a podcast which covers economics, finance, and history. Today's episode is How the Railroad Made America. Our speaker today is Patrick Allen, who is professor of history at Emory, and he's currently writing a new book entitled Keeping Track, A Concise History of American Railroads. The railroad had an enormous impact on the development of the American frontier as it cheaply moved commodities to market and encouraged farming in landlocked areas. As the first major American industrial organization, it redefined labor management relations. Patrick teaches at Emory, and in addition, with a teaching company for the great courses. I have enjoyed five of Patrick's great courses, including The Art of Teaching and The American West. After enjoying Patrick's classes, I reached out to him, and he spoke at my book clubs in New York, Chicago, and Miami. Patrick has also participated on this podcast, What Happens Next, several times on such very topics as the cholera epidemic in London, as well as religious sex. All right, let's get started. Patrick, why did you decide to write a history of the American Railroad? It was partly because, until quite recently, books about American railroads assumed that they were in decline. But since about 1980, they've staged an astonishing comeback, so they're now again very, very healthy and a vital part of the American economy. Why that turnabout came about seems to me a fascinating story. The second is, most of the people who've written general histories of American railroads have been railroad enthusiasts, or sometimes academic historians who are specialists in railroad history. That's led them to focus very closely on certain aspects of railroad history, either the technological aspects or the financial aspects. I'm able to contribute something new by looking at many other aspects of American history, particularly things like the social and labor and environmental histories, the spiritual history. What's the impact of railways on the collective psyche of the nation? I've never found the general book on American railroad history, which I wish existed, and so I've tried to write it. In my economics history class at Penn, we were assigned Nobel Prize winner Robert Fogel's book, Railroads and American Economic Growth. Fogel made the argument that railroads were an important contribution to the economy, but it was not a game changer. If the railroad had not been invented, we would have had to use alternative transportation, such as canals. Do you agree with Fogel's analysis that we would have found a substitute transportation system and would have had similar economic growth? And what do you think of economic history as a field? that applies economic techniques to historical analysis. I'm guardedly sympathetic to his approach. It's certainly true that in Britain, the first canals were built in the 1760s, and between then and about 1830, when railways came online, the Industrial Revolution had already got underway and was already roaring along. So clearly, you don't have to have railways to have an Industrial Revolution. The Erie Canal was built by 1825 and proved an incredible boon in opening up the interior, particularly of the northern states, to trade from the Atlantic into the interior. My objection, however, is that in history, it's hard enough to find out what did happen. And so it seems gratuitously complicated to pretend that some central event didn't happen. There might be a kind of abstract technical pleasure in imagining the absence of the railways, but it seems much less rewarding than studying the reality of the existence of the railways and what they did. It's comparable to asking questions like, what would have happened if the plot against Hitler's life had succeeded? Historians ought to devote overwhelmingly the bulk of their energy to finding out what did in fact happen. In a previous book club, William Cronin spoke about his book, Nature's Metropolis, Chicago and the Great West. And what Cronin focuses on is how the railroad increased the value of raw land that was not proximate to a river or waterway. Before the railroad, to get the corn to market, a farmer would feed the corn to pigs and then walk the pigs to market. Now with the railroad, the train picks up the grain and brings it straight to Chicago. This creates enormous economic value for both the landholder as well as the railroad. Who gets to share those profits is an economic as well as a political question. How did the government negotiate that split in this economic synergy? 
Larry, you've put your finger on the most intractable question in the entire history of American railroads. When we look at the Midwest, and particularly at the Great Plains, we're looking at an area which was potentially incredibly productive and fertile and lucrative. But those were resources which lay unrealized until railways went into them. Ever since Lewis and Clark, the area had been described as the Great American Desert, by which they didn't mean that it's desert like the Sahara. They meant it's deserted. It's a place where people can't live. And the reason they can't live there is because there's no wood. And if there's no wood, there's nothing to build with, and there's no fuel, two of the absolute necessities of life. So then along come the railway companies and begin building these lines out into the Great Plains, and the patterns of settlement start to follow the railways where earlier they'd followed the rivers. And of course, the railways can be laid out on more logical patterns with a denser network. So every farmer on the plains was fully aware that his way of life was absolutely dependent on the railroad because he still had to ship his grain back to market in Chicago or in Minneapolis. The amount charged by the railway for shipping it had a vital impact on the overall prosperity of his farm between 1870 and 1900. This was a period of prolonged deflation. And so that meant that even if the railway company charged the same rate every year in money, in real terms, it was appreciating. So productivity was going up, and as the market became more and more abundantly supplied, the price tended to go down, so that the farmers felt that they were being squeezed twice over. They could no longer get a high price because what they were producing was plentiful. So then, of course, they applied to the state government for relief, saying, the state made it possible for this railway to be built in the first place, usually with the grant of a charter, which specified the terms that the railroad company had to fulfil. We, the people of the state, enabled its creation, and therefore it's entirely appropriate that we ought to be able to run it. America is an anomalous case because throughout most of Europe, government very early assumed extremely intrusive role in the running of the railways, whereas in America, state governments liked the idea that the railways should be independent, but nevertheless found themselves being drawn into more and more regulation, particularly of shipping rates but then also of the hours and conditions under which railroad workers should work, because if they ran the trains badly, they would crash them and kill people. And then in things like the rates that ought to be charged to passengers, and then, of course, during the crisis of the Civil War in the 1860s, should private companies dictate to the US Army how it was going to move its troops, or should it be the other way around? It's impossible to build a railway without raising intractable political questions. So it's certainly no surprise that, reluctantly, government did become more and more closely involved, and remains so right up to the present. The railroads were crucial in the American Civil War. Both sides wanted to concentrate forces in a battlefield. The Union Army had access to the North's superior rail lines, which allowed the movement of troops. What are your thoughts about the role of the railroad in the Union's ultimate victory? There's usually a correlation between the degree of urbanization of an area and the density of its railroad network. So it's no surprise that the Union had many more lines than the Confederacy had. The problem of building lines in rural areas is that they tend to be seasonal. They're very busy at harvest time when there's a lot of the crop to be moved, but they tend to be rather quiet at other times. Whereas in the industrial northeast and midwest, there's trade going on all the time. Railways were extremely useful for shipping men and materials quickly to the fighting fronts, exactly as you said. They also realised that they should take advantage of the accumulated expertise of professional railroad managers who understood better than generals or politicians what you must and must not do with a railway. Early on in the war, Union generals would hijack a train and say, I've got to have this train to move my men to the front. But very early on, President Lincoln and his Secretary of War realised, no, we've got to leave the actual running of the railways in the hands of the railways' managers. Because if we don't, we're going to find more trains are going up to the front than are coming back, which will jam the lines and take the whole system out of service. So the Union was actually better able to organise the smooth and continuous running of its railways than the Confederacy was. The rail lines that connected Washington, D.C. with the northern state had to go through the border state of Maryland. Why was that important? 
Maryland remained a slave state. It was a slave state, but it never seceded. So the federal government had to walk on eggshells to make sure it did what it could to keep the Marylanders loyal. And railway policy was one of their absolute highest priorities, making sure the trains could continue to run back and forth across that state. That's one of the reasons for the delay in the Emancipation Proclamation. Railroads created lots of complicated legal issues related to torts and land use. Tell us about that. What happens when a train hits a farmer's animal and kills it? Is the railway liable? Does he have to pay damages to the farmer? Or was it incumbent on the farmer to make sure the animal kept out of the way? What happens when sparks from the locomotive set fire to the barn near the track? Whose fault is that? Abraham Lincoln was one of many lawyers who made his reputation in the 1840s and 50s working for the new railroads. In one famous case, Lincoln represented the railroad company whose bridge had been damaged by a ship which sailed into it and knocked the bridge over. Cases established the right of the railway companies to build bridges across the river so long as a navigation channel was left available. Because the benefits for the economic growth of the state and also for the growth of interstate commerce were so obviously right. The next topic is labor history. Railroads built the first large industrial organizations with thousands of workers spread out across the country. Tell us about the railroad's role in the development of labor management relations. Working conditions in the 19th century were awful and legal protections for workers were very few. The most vulnerable workers were the brakemen. In the days before good brakes were installed along the length of trains, brakemen had to literally run across the tops of the railroad cars, cranking a handle on each car to put its brakes on. They were constantly falling off or being thrown off on the bends. They're having their hands smashed when they were coupling the cars together. So the feeling of being treated high-handedly and arbitrarily by the management did lead, as you say, to the creation of unions. All the resources of government were put at the disposal of management, at least until the 1890s. And then very gradually, legislation inched towards more consideration for the needs of the working people, more consideration for ensuring safe working conditions, mandating air brakes, which are safer for the workers and safer for the passengers, mandating a new kind of coupling between the cars, mandating boiler inspections to prevent the explosion of faulty boilers. Interestingly, the railroad unions, particularly among the skilled workers, the drivers and the firemen, and the conductors were very unmilitant unions. In fact, they weren't called unions, they were called brotherhoods. The Brotherhood of Locomotive Engineers wasn't at all the kind of union which uses the rhetoric of militant socialism. No, they said, we're fine with capitalism. We think capitalism's terrific as long as its fruits are fairly distributed and as long as the merits of skilled working men are properly honoured by management. They didn't need management to tell them they had to be sober. They knew they had to be because they'd got hundreds of lives in their hands. On the few occasions when the Brotherhoods did strike, especially before the mid-1920s, they nearly always lost. On the other hand, there were some more militant unions, groups like the American Railroad Union of the early 1890s, which went on strike in Pullman, Illinois, and again was defeated partly because it's so much easier to replace relatively unskilled workers with strike breakers. After World War I, the whole American railroad system was nationalized. It was then denationalized by the Esch Cummins Act of 1920, which put the railways back in the hands of their private owners, but made sure that now the Interstate Commerce Commission was monitoring what each of them did very, very closely and was saying to management, you can't permit strikes to take place because the whole economy will come to a grinding halt. If you look at American history between the 1920s and the 2020s, the most striking thing is how incredibly unusual railroad strikes are. Even the threat of one is enough to bring in the full weight of the federal government. And of course, once the workers realised that the centrality of their position in the nation's economic life was fully appreciated, they were able to 
get what they wanted without heavy-handed tactics. The strongest period of the Labour movement was from the 1930s, because under the New Deal of the 1930s, the National Labour Relations Act gave explicit collective bargaining rights to trade unions in all industries. So from then until the mid-1940s, they were in a very strong position. By 1970, a freight train could be run by one person, a driver, or at most two. But union rules said there's got to be at least one conductor, two drivers, and two brakemen. Five men instead of one. And once 12 hours have passed, they've got to stop working. And once they've done 100 miles, that's a day's work, even if actually these 100 miles only took two and a half hours. So the collective position of labour got stronger until the catastrophes of the 1970s forced more political intervention to relax some of this feather bedding. In your preparation to write your new book, you decided to visit the top train museums. When you came to Chicago, I joined your exploration of the town of Pullman, Illinois, where the Pullman Company made their famous sleeper cars. What did you learn? George Pullman thought of himself as a model employer. Not only was he going to make an exceptionally good quality sleeping cars and restaurant cars, which were very popular for nearly a century, he also said that he was going to build a model community in which his workforce could live. So they'd be sober and temperate and hardworking and they'd live in respectable conditions. This is in a period in the 1880s when many working people were slum dwellers. When you go to Pullman, Illinois, it's a pretty little town with these rows of very neatly laid out workers' houses, which were graded depending on the seniority of the worker. So the foreman would have the nice corner house and people lower down the ranks would have smaller ones. And they're a short walk from the factory. But in 1892, when the Depression conditions came on, he laid off some workers and cut the pay of others, but he still expected them to pay the same rent as they had been doing previously which was literally impossible. When they went on strike with the support of the American Railroad Union, he set out to smash the union and got the help of the Attorney General, Richard Olney, the railroad owners of Chicago, and successfully demolished the strike. From then on, he was absolutely vilified as one of the most hated men in the country and was hurt and astonished to discover that what he thought of as his philanthropic principles weren't being respected. With Pullman, we have an employer who is providing high-quality housing, a library, free schools, medical care, and a safe work and home environment with no tolerance for alcohol. Pullman angers his workers because he is involved both with work and home life. Tension continues to this day because firms want happy and healthy workers, and some employees want a corporate paternal environment as well. I do remember, Larry, that when we were there, you consistently took his side and I consistently took the side of the striking workers. But it's a reminder that with changing times, we have changing ideas about what's reasonable and what's right. Certainly one of the great anxieties of the 1890s, particularly the economic crisis of the 1890s, was whether huge numbers of workers wouldn't turn into revolutionaries. The fear of communism, even before there was any communist country in the world, even more the fear of anarchists, which had come up in the Haymarket explosion in Chicago a few years before that, was so intense that it was always easy to discredit workers' discontent, no matter how well justified it was, by claiming that it was inspired by anarchists. Tell us about the leader of the American Railroad Union, who was Eugene Debs, who would later run for president of the United States from prison after being jailed by Woodrow Wilson. He was a railroad fireman, came from Terre Haute, Indiana. And he'd at first been a member of the Brotherhood of Locomotive Firemen, a very non-militant union. He was put in jail according to one of these injunctions. And while he was there, read the works of Karl Marx and emerged from prison a year later as the leader of the New American Socialist Party. So for him, the Pullman strike was a very radicalizing experience. The strike starts in Pullman, but Deb nationalizes the strike so that all railroads nationwide with a Pullman sleeper car come to a complete stop. It shuts the economy down. What were the economic and political consequences of that? 
What the American Railroad Union tried to do was to simply take the Pullman cars off each train and carry on and let all the other trains continue to run as a way of specifying that it was against Pullman. But many of the railroad companies responded by attaching a Pullman car to every train and often putting it in the middle of the train so it was very hard to detach. And obviously, from the owner's point of view, it was intolerable to be dictated to by their workers. They thought, we've got a permanent interest in these railroads, whereas our workers' interest in them is a transitory one, just the matter of their employment. So each side was certainly fully convinced of its own righteousness, but the owners had all the advantages. They'd got political influence. They could speak to congressmen and judges whom they knew. They knew the commanders of the National Guard. They knew the civic leaders in the cities, and they'd got the money to outlast the workers. A working person in the 1890s lived on a knife edge of economic uncertainty, often with just enough money to get to the end of the next week, to the next payday. That's why suddenly being laid off was such a catastrophe for them. A historian's job is to avoid taking sides. Each side is fully persuaded that it understands the situation it's looking at, And when it realises that the other side doesn't share that view, they assume that the other side is acting in bad faith. Historians, we are people, we do in fact have preferences. We can't help taking sides even when we try not to. The next topic is race and railroad unions. The Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters was a black union, but nearly all the others were exclusively white. Why did the unions separate by race? One of the unlovely characteristics of humanity is xenophobia and racism. But in the 19th century, there were far, far more categories. For a while, the Census Bureau even regarded as different races, people from northern Italy and from southern Italy. I mean, they had dozens of racial classifications. That alone is a reminder to us that race is an invented category rather than a biological category. The locomotive engineers, the train drivers and the firemen and the people with skilled jobs in the workshops were nearly all white Anglo-Saxon Protestants or in some cases white Irish Catholics. The Irish had also been victims of severe discrimination. If you were an employer, an obvious tactic would be to hire people of different ethnicities to make it much less likely that they'd make common cause in going on strike against you. Marx and Engels, when they'd theorised revolution back in the 1840s, had predicted that the members of the working class would quickly come to appreciate their solidarity and because they were numerically so strong, would rise up and overthrow capitalism. The capitalists knew that they'd said that and did everything they possibly could to prevent it from happening. And one of the techniques they used was to play off ethnic groups against each other, which they often did with a high degree of success. Now, if you were a white train engineer you would take the view that you were part of the privileged population which was the life and soul of the American Republic and that there was something distinctly inferior and retrograde about these latecomers, particularly if they were Catholics because part of American identity in the early Republic had been political freedom and we've got religious freedom. But if you're a Catholic, you can't have religious freedom because in effect you're mentally enthralled by the Pope. You're prevented from thinking for yourself on important issues. And it was true that Catholic immigrants mainly came from places which didn't have a tradition of political liberty. So there was a close association of Protestantism with liberty and democracy and Catholicism with autocracy and tyranny and backwardness. The railroad is invented, manufactured, and used first in England and then in America afterwards. American geography and topography are quite different than in the United Kingdom. Tell us about how railroad innovation and implementation differed in the United States versus in Britain. The world's first functioning steam railway was really the Stockton and Darlington Railway, which opened in 1825, and then the much more sophisticated Liverpool and Manchester Railway of 1830. By then, the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad had been founded. At first, they were quite heavily dependent on imported British technology, 
But the Americans found that British locomotives wouldn't run very well on American tracks because the Americans had got tighter curves and steeper gradients. Because the distances were so great in America, most American railroads had to be built single track with just occasional passing places for trains to pass each other. If you do that, you will once make operations much, much more difficult. Think about this. If there's two trains going each way every day, that means there's going to be a total of four meetings when the trains have got to stop. They've got to make sure they're at the right place at the right time. But if you've got 10 trains going each day, there's 100 meetings. It gets much, much harder. It wasn't until the mid-20th century that many railways, even major ones, were double-tracked along their whole length. Once you've got double-track, each train can go non-stop both ways. So double-tracking is a massive advantage, but it's a very, very expensive one, especially if you're building over thousands of miles. And the American mountains are much bigger than the British mountains. Even the Appalachians are taller than the tallest mountain in Britain, and the Rockies are much, much taller. So there are some hair-raising technical challenges to overcome. Steam locomotives, which were used almost completely until the 1930s, require not just coal, but also water. What happens when you're running the train across the California and Nevada desert? Where does the water come from to make steam? And so already by the 1850s and 60s, New technology for railways was coming from America and being exported back to Britain as the British Empire started building railways in its Indian Empire, for example, or as it started building railways in Australia. American experience proved to be very useful indeed. Why did the American railroad system go into decline in the 1960s and 1970s? The biggest bankruptcy in American history up to the time came in 1970 when the Penn Central Railroad went bankrupt. It had only existed for two years because of the merger in 1968 of the New York Central and the Pennsylvania Railroad. One was that labour costs were much too high, that they'd got far too many people working because the unions had been able to enforce these featherbedding rules where every new technology did not lead to people being laid off. So unions was one thing. Second was running passenger trains. Once automobiles and aircraft had been perfected, and once there was a good nationwide system of airports and a good nationwide system of highways, trains cost more to run than they could take in from the passengers. The third thing was regulation. The Interstate Commerce Commission was set up in 1887 in response to a wide perception that railroads were throwing their weight around and that they were bullies. And what the Interstate Commerce Commission did was lay down more and more stringent rules and regulations limiting railroads' latitude of action. So that by the early 20th century, railroads, if they wanted to change the rates they were charging, would have to apply to the ICC for permission to do so. So it meant that the railroads were locked into more and more inflexible conditions. Whereas when trucking companies came along in the 1920s, truckers were free to charge whatever they liked. That meant, of course, that the truckers were running at a huge advantage. What happened after the Penn Central bankruptcy in 1970? Government took over the running of the Penn Central Railroad. It turned it into Conrail, which was a kind of quasi-public corporation. And that put the Interstate Commerce Commission rules in abeyance. And that enabled Conrail to start reducing its workforce, giving strong protections to the workers it kept, but stripping down its workforce by a huge percentage. Second, the government agreed to take over passenger railways in 1970 by founding Amtrak. But it's never been good enough to revive the old profitability of passenger railways because the essential conditions remain unchanged. My son went to camp near Eagle River, Wisconsin, and I went to the train museum there. The Chicago Northwestern had a passenger line that left Chicago at 5 p.m. on Saturday and arrived at Eagle River's train station at 7 a.m. the next day, 14 hours. In 1960, the interstate highway opened, cutting the travel time to five hours by car. Six months later, it was game over. The passenger train line was terminated because everyone drove. Cars and aircraft are simply better for what they can do. In the late 1970s, most of the major American railroads went bankrupt. Today, railroads are profitable in a growth industry. What happened? deregulation. 
the governments of the late 70s and early 80s all agreed we've got too much regulation and it does in fact have a strangling effect on economic initiative. The Staggers Act under President Carter finally released the railroads from the smothering grip of the Interstate Commerce Commission. They gained the right to change shipping rates. We're going to decline this cargo. We're going to make this a variable rate according to the season or even according to the direction in which the cargo is being taken. And they went into another period of very intense mergers so that by the early 2000s, what had emerged in America was just five huge companies taking on only the freight they wanted with extraordinary efficiencies of scale, fantastic new technologies like containerization, and no need to worry about passengers anymore, with a much shrunken workforce, with astonishingly efficient locomotives. And that combination, along with some very talented management, put them back in the black, and they've remained there since then. Europe has greater population density that makes it ideal for intercity passenger trains. Other than Amtrak from Boston to D.C., why does the U.S. not have more passenger trains? It's almost entirely a question of distances. If you're going from Frankfurt to Berlin or Paris to Rome or Paris to London now that the Channel Tunnel is in operation, it's as quick on the train as it is by plane. Once you factor in the trip to the airport, parking, security, waiting around, and the fact that airports are a long way out of town. The train ride from Paris to Berlin is great. It's quick. You go 200 kilometers an hour nearly all the way, and you end up right in the center of the city where you want to be. It's not surprising that the most successful passenger route in America is the one which is where the distances are comparable. Boston, New Haven, New York, Philadelphia, Baltimore, and Washington. Those places are spaced at the same kind of intervals as European cities. And that's the most successful Amtrak line. And it's got the Acela trains. It's got the best of everything. But going from, for example, Atlanta, where I live, to Chicago, by car, is it's a two-day ride and it's hard going. And in a train, it's three days because the trains are so slow. So, of course, you go on a plane, which takes two and a half hours. So unless trains can become much, much faster and much more frequent air travel is going to dominate the long-distance routes. Now, there is a fascinating real-world experiment going on at the moment. Since the year 2000, China has built a lot of very high-speed lines, and they've more or less annihilated domestic air flights in China. The reason why it was possible to do in China, and it isn't possible to do it here in America, is because China's got a very autocratic government. Once they've decreed that the railway will be built, it is built. Often it's built on concrete stilts which stride across the landscape and there's no delay from the environmental impact reports, the kinds of things which hold up railway building projects here. So there's no question that high-speed rail can be made to work, but ironically it works best with autocracy. The railroad in literature and film is our next topic. The railroad was central to American life and so it's not surprising it plays a major part in American culture. Can you give us a few examples? Railways were assimilated into American writing. Read any American novel written between about 1850 and about 1950, and you'll find that the characters get from place to place by train. One of the conventions of American literature is that cities are wicked and the countryside is pure. So if you look at, for example, Sister Carrie by Theodore Dreiser, it starts with Carrie Meeber, a young girl who's come from a very boring farm in Wisconsin, and she's longing to go to the big city, to Chicago. And she gets on the train, and no sooner has she done so than she meets a man who's superficially very attractive who seduces her so you have the idea that the train carries people from the country to the city and in doing so it morally corrupts them on the other hand when Sinclair Lewis came to write Main Street about 20 years after Sister Carrie he does a very clever inversion of that trick he shows the characters going on a train across rural Minnesota and a woman who's been well-bred in the city is now going to live with her new husband, a country doctor, out in the countryside. And as she looks at the people on the train, she shrinks with distaste from what a 
grubby and dirty and intemperate and uncultivated population they are. Trains are wonderful from the point of view of bringing together people who otherwise wouldn't meet. I mean, there's an inherent drama in railway stations where people say farewells. Similarly, right from the beginning, film and railways got on great together, partly because to film a moving train, there's lots to see. One of the early Hollywood tropes, I suppose you call it, a motif is the beautiful young girl chained to the railway track and the Great Express is coming and can her boyfriend save her in time? There are lots of those from the Max Sennett era of Hollywood comedies. One of the early Hitchcock movies is called The Lady Vanishes and it's about a group of people on a train, including a nice old lady, and suddenly she disappears. But the train hasn't stopped, so she's got to be on the train. And yet... Everyone who must previously have seen her suddenly says, no, no, they didn't see her. Anyway, so the mystery depends upon that paradox. And similarly, in Agatha Christie's book, Murder on the Orient Express, a murder is committed on a moving train. So the great detective thinks one of the people on this train must have committed the murder and he investigates and thinks... It can't possibly have been any of them and yet it must have been all of them. And so that's the paradox he has to deal with. Anyway, as you say, Larry, to me, the use of railways in both fiction and films has been astonishing and wonderful. After getting accepted to the University of Pennsylvania in the summer of 1984, Amtrak was running a special where you buy one ticket and your wife travels for free. So I called a classmate of mine, Maria Bosco, from high school and asked her to marry me. I told her the opportunity and that Amtrak was also offering unlimited luggage at no additional expense. So our families had a big dinner together and we took an evening Amtrak train from Chicago's Union Station to Penn Station in Philadelphia. I think the trip took 20 hours and it was three hours late. Some honeymoon. One of the things which took a long time to learn was that sometimes there's merit in going slowly. For example, just as railroads suffered from the rise of aircraft, so did the transatlantic shipping industry suffer from the rise of aircraft because a transatlantic crossing would take four or five days and a plane could do it in less than one day. But eventually, the shipping people came up with the concept of the cruise where the whole point is to go on a ship and to do it slowly. And, of course, by now, the cruise industry is thriving as never before and, you know, 50 new ships are being launched every year and it's becoming a problem, there's so many of them. And in the same way, the railways have realised slow rail travel when you want to get somewhere is terrible. But slow rail travel when the whole point is the journey is great. And so the growth of luxury trains has proliferated. America's a little bit behind on this. The Canadians have got much better ones with trains like the Rocky Mountaineer, the revival of the Orient Express in Europe. And in Britain now, there are trains where they go slowly from London to Scotland and you have a sleeping car and incredible dining cars and there's a Scotch whiskey tasting along the way. And the whole point is to be a moving vacation. That's never going to revive ordinary passenger travel because things like this tend to be very expensive. My favorite rail film is Runaway Train. It's a John Voight movie that was released in 1985. Two convicts have escaped from a maximum security prison. They get on a freight train, but the train engineer has a heart attack and is dead. The locomotive is going full speed ahead with nothing to stop it. The movie is all action. How are those convicts going to stop that train? Meanwhile, the railroad is also in a panic. There are environmental concerns and internal squabbles about how this would have been solved in the old days when there were more workers aboard that train to apply the brakes. Runaway train is an illustration for the point the trade unions have been making that now the railway companies have taken it too far in stripping down the staff. The recent accidents in places like East Palestine, Ohio, where the train carrying toxic wagons set fire, it ought not to have derailed, it ought not to have caught fire, there ought to have been all kinds of safeguards in place. So it may be true that the understaffing has gone too far. My understanding is that that East Palestine derailment was caused by a wheel that got too hot and failed when making a turn. There's always a tension between economics and additional safety procedures. Tell us about that challenge. The history of railroad safety is with the railroad companies kicking and screaming every inch of the way, claiming that it'll drive them into bankruptcy and that they can't afford to do it. And time after time, they've been shown to be untruthful about that. 
Nevertheless, it's also true that some safety devices are much more cost-effective than others. Some cost hundreds of millions of dollars to install, and the total number of lives saved per year is one or two. Now, of course, it's difficult to put a price on a human life, but it's also necessary. Reasonable people can disagree about what that price should be and whether the safety measures which are available are the best ones to install. The most common source of railroad accidents today is drivers going across even though the gates are coming down and then getting stuck in their truck getting hit, or people just literally wandering on the railroad and being hit. There's no easy fix to that. Railroad track beds themselves take an enormous pounding. You can imagine that coal trains, which weigh 20,000 tonnes, and they're rolling along at 40 miles an hour, the track has got to be in incredibly good shape to absorb the battering that that gives. The railroad companies correctly say far more tanker trucks have accidents on the roads than railroad tankers. But when there is a railroad disaster like this one, and there's an apocalyptic fire, it feels much worse. Getting the safety regulations just right is a very difficult matter of balancing expense against actual improvement in safety. Nature is inhospitable in many places. Snowfall in the Rockies is severe and prevents trains from getting through the mountains. When we visited that rail museum in Union, Illinois together, they had a rotary snowplow, which was an engineering marvel. This plow would break up a 10-foot snowbank with ease. Watching it work is mind-boggling. When the train is moving, the snow explodes. Tell us about it. Because of American geography and climate, snow removal has always been a problem, particularly in the north and in the mountains. The earliest railroads on the East Coast, if you were a male passenger, when you bought a ticket, you were often agreeing, either implicitly or explicitly, to shovel snow if necessary. If the train came to a standstill, the women huddled around the stove inside the car and the men got out and shoveled snow until the train was clear. Now, you could usually manage like that in the eastern states. But once railroads were built out into the Great Plains, particularly up into the Rocky Mountains, where temperatures often go down to minus 20 or 30, sometimes for long periods, and where you have very severe blizzards, it simply wasn't good enough. So one of the inventions was called a bucker plow, and this is a shaped blade as high as the locomotive. Sometimes a special cupola, like a tower, was placed onto the locomotive cab so that somebody could see above the plow. And then relying on momentum, the locomotive pushing this plow would just blast its way into the snow face in the hope of being able to push it to one side. Sometimes it worked, sometimes it didn't. The really decisive technological breakthrough was the invention of the rotary snow plow, invented in the early 1880s by a Canadian man called Orange Jull. And the great thing about the rotary snowplow is that it didn't rely on momentum. Instead of going as fast as possible in the hope you could shower the snow away, it could go very slowly. So it's got an engine of its own, it's pushed by a locomotive, and it's powered. What the power is doing in the rotary snowplow is it's turning a massive rotating blade at the front of the device, which is like an aircraft propeller with angled blades and you push it against the face of snow, and these blades cut into it. The rotation flings it aside in a huge arc. There have been some terrible accidents in the snow. The worst accident in American railroad history took place in about 1910 at a place called Wellington in Washington State. This is up in the Cascade Mountains, very high up, and the line was built across a slope. It snowed very heavily, and the train couldn't move forward. Another train came up, then it snowed so heavily behind it that neither train could get either up or down. So two trains were stuck there in the little town of Wellington. And in the previous year, the whole of the slope above them had been logged, been clear cut. So long as the snow was falling and so long as it was cold enough, everything was okay. But when it warmed a little bit and the snow turned to rain, then a great avalanche began and it came down right in the middle of the night and swept away these two trains and carried them down into the valley below, killing just about everyone on board. The accident took place in early March. They couldn't finally dig out the bodies until July, so that really had apocalyptic consequences. The railroad company responded first by building snow shelters over the line and then by building a tunnel at a much lower altitude so they wouldn't even have to go that high. But it's remained a problem in American railroading right up to the present. 
Why did the railroads abandon steam locomotives for diesel? One of the sad things of learning more about railways is that you realize just how hopeless steam locomotives were. Well, let me qualify that. For an invention of the early 1800s, it was absolutely cutting edge because it was the first time that a human device had ever gone faster than a human person can move or even than a running horse can go. So they were wonderfully sophisticated by comparison with what had gone before. By now, when we look at them, we think, is that really how they had to manage? That's right, with one guy shoveling coal for all he's worth and then heating it, turning it into steam and then converting the steam to such a pressure that it can actually push machinery that heavy, that it can move not just a 100-ton locomotive, but the hundreds more tons of the train itself. That's a signal of how energetic steam can be. But they were dirty, they were slow, they took a huge amount of maintenance. You needed two or three hours in the morning to get them started from cold to operating pressure. They spent as long in the workshop as they spent out on the lines. They constantly needed comprehensive overhauls. In every way, diesel locomotives were superior. It breaks my heart to admit it because of my love for steam trains. And steam trains are dirty. They produce massive quantities of smoke and ash. If you look at photographs of American industrial cities anytime between 1850 and 1960, they're covered in a pall of dirty smoke and the buildings are covered in soot. Everything is filthy. And that leads to a huge rise in respiratory diseases. It means you can never really be clean. People who worked on the railway said you'd get so dirty that even if you had a week's holiday, every morning when he woke up, there'd be soot on the pillow because it's got into your eye sockets and it gradually works its way out of your eye sockets over the next few days. And of course, you're inhaling this stuff all the time. I mean, this is another of the paradoxes of nostalgia. We're we're nostalgic for these things which were life-threatening in every (laughs) respect. Railroads have gotten exponentially more productive over time. And to do that, they needed to be more productive in every way. The quality of the steel, the improvements in engines and brakes. Tell us about the incredible improvements to a very complex system. They've become steadily better. One of the most amazing aspects of railroading today is how long the trains can be. I mean, they're now often more than a mile long. You can imagine the enormous amount of strain that's on the couplers between the cars, and sometimes the couplers separate. So how do you prevent that from happening? Well, they've realized that the way to do it is to, instead of having just locomotives at the front of the train, you have a pusher locomotive at the back, and you often have ones in the middle as well. It's called distributed power. They're all operated by the driver in the front cab. He can increase the power being delivered from each of the units back in the train. So that, for example, if a train is going over a rise, it means that when the driver of the front is already going downhill, but part of the train is still coming uphill, he can increase the thrust on the engines at the back to reduce the pressure on the couplers. Trains operate in conjunction with ships and trucks. Tell us about the integration of these transportation systems. Another huge technological jump of the last few decades has been the revolution in containers, double-stacked. Containers began in the 1950s, and they were invented by a North Carolina trucking guy who was sick of the fact that he'd drive his truck to the dockyard, and then everything in the truck would have to be unloaded by hand and put into cranes and swung onto a ship. And organized crime dominated the dockyard, so a lot of this stuff got stolen. And so he bought an old World War II tanker ship and experimented with standard-sized containers. The first voyage took place in 1957. It took decades after that for it to catch on widely, but once it had, the improvements in productivity and speed of shipment were immense. A product can be made in central China and put in a container, then a train brings it to the Chinese port, a container ship, which is purpose-built, brings it to Los Angeles or Long Beach, then it gets put on a Santa Fe train and it's carried all the way to Chicago, and then it's taken in a truck from Chicago to Glencoe, Illinois, And no one's touched the stuff inside it. It's been continuously in movement, except for when these wonderfully efficient dockyard cranes take it off one device and onto another. Nobody's touched it. It's quicker than it's ever been. The improvement over the old dockyard technique is phenomenal. 
What are you optimistic about with regard to our national rail system? Railroads have already got a 200-year history, and I think they've got plenty of life left in them into the future because no one's found a more efficient way of moving heavy, solid objects across ground. There are miracles of efficiency by comparison with any other alternative. The number of accidents will decrease. The regulation will become more stringent. They'll become adaptable to renewable energy sources. And I think they'll continue to become less and less noticeable to people who aren't directly involved with them. This is already true to some extent. You could be a highly intelligent and well-educated American without realising how important railroads are, because unless you're actually right next to one, you never notice them. They've become progressively more invisible. Atlanta began its life as a railroad centre. That's why it's there. But when you go into downtown Atlanta now, you don't see trains because they're all underground. The whole of the urban infrastructure has been built over them, which, of course, makes the city safer and quieter. I've only got one grandchild, and he already lives in Europe, (laughs) lives in England. He will travel regularly by train because the distances he's got to travel make trains appropriate. Americans will continue to not travel by train, I expect, unless some technological breakthrough happens, such as the building of a high-speed network, which would once again make railways possible, comparable to China, although it's very hard to see how that might happen. Or possibly some even more revolutionary technology, like magnetic levitation. We already know it works. One set of magnets lift a train slightly off the track, so it doesn't have wheels at all. And another set of magnets causes it to go along very rapidly. There is a maglev train in operation between Shanghai Airport and Shanghai the city, which goes at about 260 miles per hour. It's the fastest vehicle of its kind in the world. So they can be built and they can operate. But whether we can actually create a nationwide network of them, either in this nation or any other, remains a little bit hard to believe. Japan's working hard on it at the moment. But I think were we to have the privilege of coming back in 100 years to see what the railways were doing, we'd find one, that they were still there, and two, that they'd still got wheels. Thanks to Patrick for joining us today. If you missed last week's show, check it out. The topic was remembering the Waco Inferno. It has now been 30 years since the Waco catastrophe, and there are many lessons to learn from that disaster. We discussed the FBI's decision to lead an assault that resulted in the death of 78 people, including 25 children. The FBI had run out of patience with the Branch Davidians religious leader, David Koresh. The speakers were Kevin Cook, who is the author of the book, Waco Rising. Our friend Patrick Allett was also a speaker, as was my buddy Darren Schwartz, who is the What Happens Next TV and movie critic. I would now like to make a plug for next week's show with Ohio University professor Ingo Trauschweiser, who wrote a biography entitled Maxwell Taylor's Cold War, From Berlin to Vietnam. The discussion will focus on the dangers of relying on the advice of generals in political decision-making. Generals often see military solutions to foreign policy problems, and that can be a catastrophe. You can find our previous episodes and transcripts on our website, what happens next in six minutes.com. Please subscribe to our weekly emails and follow us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Thank you for your continued engagement. Goodbye.